0: Morning. Reading this morning, Psalm ninety-two. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, to the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord! How profound your thoughts! Senseless people do not know, fools do not understand, that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evil flourishes, they will be destroyed forever. But you, Lord... Are forever exalted. For surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. The righteous will flourish like palm trees. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will still stay fresh and green, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no wickedness in him. May God bless the reading of his holy word.
1: Thank you, Pam. So this morning's sermon is essentially going to tell you why it's good that you're here this morning. Just to give you a heads up. Because it is good to worship on the Sabbath day. And so the title of the sermon is um, a Sabbath song. And that comes straight from, if you're looking in your Bible... Psalm 92, at the very top, it says a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. And so this psalm was written for days like today, when we gather together on the Sabbath day, God's chosen day for rest and for for refreshment. That's what this psalm is for. So that's what we're gonna be trying to discover together this morning. But just to get us started, because we need a little bit of an entry point into this. um, Have any of you seen the Snickers commercial? That we're um, this, these people are just acting totally unnormal and crazy, and they look different than what they're supposed to, and they just something's very off. And then, and then they someone hands them the Snickers bar, and they take a bite, and they turn to normal again. And the tagline is, "Yeah, you're not you when you're hungry." Is the tagline, "Hangry" is what it is. And so you're not, you're not you when you're hungry. Um, and so maybe the opposite of that would be another commercial that I see often, which is by Red Bull, which says Red Bull gives you wings. And so you see the person fly off when they drink a Red Bull because it's an energy drink. So that's like two ends of the spectrum. One is when you're hangry, and you're not you. One is when you drink an energy drink and you have a lot of energy, it's so much like you feel like you're flying on wings. And so my question to begin this morning is what what makes you you again? When you are feeling the most depleted, the most down and out, what refreshes you? What do you go to consistently to be recentered, recalibrated, refreshed? What is the what is the Snickers bar for your soul? You could say, or what is the the Red Bull that makes you fly spiritually? You could say. So the point of today's sermon is basically to say, if we're to take the Snickers ad and put a spiritual spin on it is to say that you're not fully you when you don't worship on the Sabbath. That if we had to use the analogy here, Sabbath worship is to you what the Snickers bar is to the hangry person. (laughs) That's a big statement to make because not a whole lot of people are here on a Sabbath Sunday morning in our current culture refreshment on the Sabbath comes through the worship of the Lord. I'm gonna give, there's an article that came out in November of 2021. So it's about half a year old now, but it says, this is the title of the article. It says, empty pews are an American public health crisis. Not just a spiritual crisis, not just a religious crisis, but a public health crisis. It's a really fascinating article. And if you read its entirety, it basically makes the argument that by not going to church, your physical health is actually at a detriment. And it's a fascinating article. The underline is, quote, Americans are rapidly giving up on church. Our minds and bodies will pay the price. And so they gave all kinds of research Let me just give a couple of things here. I don't want to read the whole article, obviously, but it gets to a point where he finally just says, so what are the public health benefits of church attendance? So this is good for you. This is saying if you continue in the habit of coming here week after week, your health will actually be better. Again, this isn't a, but I'm going to give the caveat here. This is not to say that if you come to church every week, you will be guaranteed good health. But this is to say that there is something about consistent worship with other people that is really good for your physical health. This is what they say. They surveyed more than 70,000 people in this nurses' health study, and they said medical workers who said they attended religious services frequently were 29% less likely to become depressed, 50% less likely to divorce, five times less likely to commit suicide than those who never attended, Let me go on to a couple of more things. It says the findings of that survey are not unique. It says a number of large, well-designed research studies have found that religious service attendance is associated with greater longevity, less depression, less suicide, less smoking, less substance abuse, better cancer and cardiovascular disease survival, greater social support, greater meaning in life, greater life satisfaction, more volunteering, and greater civic engagement. And the article just goes on and on and on. I I can send you the article if you're really interested to read all the the positive effects of coming together in worship. But the takeaway, this is their takeaway. Our research suggests that those who neglect to meet together, (parentheses Hebrews 10.25, likely miss something of the religious experience that is powerful, both for health and for much else as well. The data is clear. Going to church remains central to true human flourishing. So it's good for you to be here this morning. And we're getting amens from the children, amen. So just a couple of things by way of starting. Um, Refreshment, Sabbath, and worship. Those are three words I've used already, and they go together. Refreshment, Sabbath, and worship. I'm going to get those started to begin with here. Refreshment, in the book of Acts, there's a really fascinating uh, sentence here that I actually remember preaching on probably about a year ago. You probably don't remember because it's been a long time. But it says this, Acts 3, 19 to 20. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. All right, we get that part. If you repent, your sins will be blotted out. That's kind of basic Christian thinking, right? But this is what it goes on to say. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If you repent and your sins are blotted out, that is refreshing to you, to your deepest self. Refreshment is offered from the Lord. Secondly, the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the the day set apart by God for rest, for trusting in him to do the work, and for enjoyment in him. That's what the Sabbath day is designed for, the seventh day God rested. And to read that Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 passage that the survey mentioned, it says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's why we continue to worship. And that's why throughout the COVID pandemic, we tried to get as creative as we could to make it possible to worship together because it's super important, not just to spirit, but to body as well. And lastly, the word worship. When we say worship, what do we mean? This is a worship service. This whole thing has been designed week after week not to entertain you, but to give you a space to enter into worship of the living God, giving glory and praise to God because he is worthy to receive it. So, what kind of refreshment does Sabbath worship give? So, if that's the intro. Refreshment comes through Sabbath worship. What is the refreshment that it gives? That's essentially what we're going to give you in the next little bit. Three things, because I always seem to find three things, because if I do more, I run out of time. If I did two, it probably wouldn't be enough. So three is kind of where I settle on. Three kinds of refreshment. Joy, enlightenment, and then here's this word again. We've used it all morning. Flourishing. Joy, enlightenment, and flourishing. Flourishing that's the refreshment that we're going to look at from Psalm 92. So first one, joy. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. So again, if you're in your bulletin, you should have a printout of the section. If not, you can find it in your pew Bible. Verses 1 to 4 introduces us to the joy that Sabbath worship brings our hearts and our souls. And so, Again, uh, during our prayer time this morning, we, we prayed prayers of lament, we prayed prayers um, you know, for the Lord to, to lift us up. We sang the song just a, minute, uh, just a minute ago talking about when sorrows cease. We are longing for joy. And we come to this place this morning, again, not to be entertained, but to actually find the thing that we're looking for, which is in part, joy. That song finished just a moment ago when sorrows cease, then joy unspeakable will flood my soul, and I will be home. That is the ultimate day, but that also is promised for this day as well. Even if you look just at verse number one, it says this, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Worship of the Lord is good, it says. It is good for you to do this. It is good for you to come and to worship. Just like when you tell a young child at a dinner table, it's good for you to eat your vegetables, so now the preacher is preaching to you saying, it is good for you to worship. And we're not going to spoon feed it to you, though we kind of do that, I guess, sometimes. I guess maybe that is what a worship service is, is a spoon feeding. But it's also just saying, hey, this this is nourishing to you. This is good for you to do this. It is good for us to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to his name, to declare his steadfast love in the morning and his faithfulness at night. That is good for us. Sabbath worship is a weekly reminder to take the attention off of us and put it back onto the living, redeeming, saving God. Do you ever, I mean, do you ever just realize how me-centered all of us are? Our lives are just full of me-centered problems that Monday through Saturday, we just, we run the gamut of me-centered problems. Our jobs, our careers, the house project you want to get fixed, your health, your retirement plan, kids, anxieties and addictions, stress about money. All those things are me-centered problems, which are things we need to get taken care of. Mature adults need to take care of all those things. Those are not bad things to take care of, but they're solely focused on you and on your problems. It's good to come together to worship because it directs our attention back to God and allows our heart to get to a place of gratitude and thankfulness. Do you remember a few weeks ago when Alan was preaching up here and he gave... Uh, the, all the positive benefits to gratitude. It was a really quite a memorable uh, part of his sermon where he was talking about how if you, if you give thanks in the moments before you go to bed, you're much more likely to sleep better than if you allow those anxieties to rest on your, on your mind. He said, take just a few moments to write down before you go to bed things you're grateful for and you'll sleep better. Well, I would say for a corporate together worship service, This is our chance as a body, as a group of people to come together at the beginning of a week and at the end of the week, however you want to look at it. Sunday is kind of the nice bridge between the week before and the week to come. This is our chance to come together to collectively give thanks to God, to give gratitude so that we can enter into the next week out of a position of rest and thankfulness and trust to recenter our perspectives again, our, our troubles are real, so I'm not diminishing those at all, but they are not the final story. And Sabbath worship helps recenter our perspective on the story of God's love and faithfulness that endures forever. A phrase that is repeated 52 times in the Bible. His love endures forever. Sabbath worship gives us a place and a moment to speak back to God with some guided intentionality. So part of the reason we give you a worship guide is to help facilitate that worshipful practice for you during this one hour. So you can pray with us, so you can sing with us, so you can read the scriptures and have it read over you, so we can enter into his presence in song and in prayer. This Sabbath worship place gives us a space and time to be with other people. There's 50 people in this room this morning that have had all different types of experiences this week. And frankly, we probably could do a better job in this church of giving you all space during this one hour, to share what God is doing in your life. I would actually, I'd I'd love to brainstorm with you ways that we could just invite ways to hear more of what God is doing in our lives from all of us. I know it's kind of scary to come up here to the front, so maybe we can think of just more creative ways uh, to make that not as threatening. But wouldn't it be great to just hear one another's stories more? It's part of why we do a coffee hour after the service, is to facilitate that kind of thing. But this is, this is all resulting in joy. It all leads up to that. Not just mere happiness, not just you know, feeling better, but actually having deep soul contentment, a steadfast hope and confidence that God is working. Look down to verse four now. It says, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. That's where I'm getting all this. We sang two songs at the beginning of the service today talking about the greatness of God. How great thou art. Just an exalting song talking about the greatness of God's works. How he works throughout the universe. But here you'll notice in verse 4, it uses the word work without the S. And then it uses the word works with the S. The singular and the plural. Both of which result in joy for us. But let's just think about what both of those mean for a second. Work, singular, when it talks about the work of the Lord, that is God's redemptive plan that he has unfolded throughout history. His saving activity from generation to generation. His work on the cross to save you and me. That you and I get the pleasure because we are living in the current day. We have more examples of God's saving work in history to look back on than any other person in human history. You ever thought about that? You're not not living in the future. You're living at the edge of all existence right now, which means you have more history to look back on than anybody else that's come before you, which also means that that's more of God's saving work to see than anybody else in history. So actually, we have less reason to doubt than previous generations because we have more evidence, more examples of God's saving work. And then the plural, works. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. I think that's more of the individual stuff, the stuff in your particular life of daily forgiveness, restoration, healing, sustaining work, what he's done for you particularly. Particularly. That brings joy. Again, this space, this one hour, is really just designed to to give you opportunities to recognize it. To see it and to give it back. And to let God flood your heart with joy this morning. So that's joy. The next thing that the Sabbath refreshes refreshes us with is what I'll say is enlightenment. And what I don't mean by enlightenment is you're smarter or like more wise than ever before. It's not like a, you know, we talk about the great enlightenment period, the great awakening, like how we got so smart, we got very rational. What I'm saying is enlightenment is actually the refreshment of God opening our eyes to see things for how they really are. We live in a world where truth is under attack, you could say, where dullness is probably more frequent when it comes to spiritual things. People just are not as open to the reality of a spiritual realm. Salem's probably a little different than most places. But by and large, we live our lives pretty rationally. And we oftentimes, therefore, we can box God out of our life and say, no, that great thing that happened in my life was actually because of X, Y, and Z, not because of God's amazing grace to open it up. What the Sabbath worship does for us, if you look at verses five to nine, is it shows us God's deep work that he's doing in the world and in our lives. Verses five to nine, you'll see verse five, it says, how great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. So it starts by this assumption that God is working on a deep level in our world. But you'll notice it goes immediately after that. It uses some pretty crass language actually here. Words that I tell my kids not to use. It says, the stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That's not very nice, psalmist. Why are you calling people stupid or fools? the reason he's saying that is basically he's trying to make a big comparison to say if you're ignoring the deep work that God is doing in the world it's just a it's not a wise thing to do it's foolish and yet as we go throughout our weeks monday to saturday all of us get to the place each week where we kind of convince ourselves that we're doing a lot of the work ourselves even christians But worship on the Sabbath corrects that for us. It directs our eyes back onto God. And God opens back our eyes to say, hey, actually, I'm the one in control. You're fully dependent on me. Let me enlighten you again to my grace and my love at work in your life. Let's just consider for a second what our life without weekly worship looks like. Because that's essentially what verses 6 to 7 and then verse 9 look like. If we don't worship the Lord, we do not know and cannot understand life as it truly is meant to be. We become a stupid fool, as it says. We begin living only for ourselves, for our own happiness, our own pleasure, our own fame. We forget about God. We put him in a little box and put him in the corner and go to him and we need him. But we don't live our life in thankfulness or in gratitude because we're just not thinking of him. Ultimately, our lives are lived in the shallow end of the pool, which the shallow end of a pool is great for a a toddler. And it can be kind of refreshing on a hot day. You can get your ankles wet, and if you fall over, you can kind of get wet. But ultimately, it's the shallow end of the pool. And we may look at the deep ocean and say, that's too far out there. I'm not really sure about that. I'm not going to venture into the ocean I'll just stay right here in the ankle deep water and pick up seashells here and just enjoy this little safe, shallow existence here. But this psalm kind of directs us to say, look at the vastness and the depth and the beauty of life that you're missing. By direct by not directing your life towards the God who is deep, whose works are deep. 2 Corinthians says it pretty. Pretty bluntly, verse four, chapter four, verse four. This is Paul. He says, the God of this world, not talking about Jesus here. He's talking about the God of this world being the evil one, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you see that there's an active... Blinding that the evil one wants to do so that your eyes will not be open to the depth and richness of full life. And that's what results in the the person being called a fool. It's actually not as much their fault. Some of it is their fault, but some of it there's an antagonistic enemy who's putting a blind over their eyes so that they can't see it. Even Christians can get to that place too and I mean, we saw during COVID how easy it is to fall out of habit of meeting together and worship. And many have not returned, not just to this church, but to churches around the world. And sometimes we even convince ourselves on a Sunday morning when we wanna sleep in a little bit, we say, you know, church is just a little boring. Or maybe, maybe I can just read my Bible and listen to music on my own today, and that'll be enough. But we forget the power of this, of the Sabbath worship experience, of coming together to be reminded of who we are. Verse 7 shows us that we can actually live for ourselves. We can live with that blind over our eyes and actually flourish, it says. Verse 7, it says, though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, you can live for yourself and have a great life. You can have a lot of money. You can have a big house. You can probably be pretty happy. You can flourish in one sense. But it's not the depth of an enlightened life that God opens our eyes to. Ultimately, we all still die in verse 7 and verse 9. It says, all enemies and all evildoers perish or be scattered. They are doomed to destruction forever because their eyes are blinded by that veil. But coming to this place in worship on the Sabbath opens our eyes again to God's work. We are reminded of a deeper, different story, a better narrative that God is working in the world for us. We are invited anew to look at the one who is above all things, verse 8, which gives us courage to step out again in faith for the week ahead and to follow him in faithfulness. Paul says in another place, on the contrary to the veil being put over your eyes, in Ephesians 1, verses 17 and 18, it says this, The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, gives you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. You see the difference? On one level... The God of this world puts a veil over the eyes of unbelievers so that they don't see it. And on the other side is the God of mercy opening up the eyes of your heart. What in the, how do you have eyes on your heart? The righteous shall live by faith, it says. God opens your heart to believe and to experience the presence of the living God. And that's what you get in a setting like this. Again, that once a week spur, that reminder to live life not for yourself but for others. C.S. Lewis has a great illustration here to kind of open this up of of what, what real Christian enlightenment is. He says famously, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see the sun, but because by the sun I see everything else. It's a beautiful way of thinking about it, right? That's what, that's what the enlightenment of Christian faith is. When Christ opens your eyes, you not only see Jesus and see God with your heart, but you actually also see the world as he sees it, and your life is transformed. And this gets into our last point, Flourishing. We said that this church is a church that exists for the flourishing of our city. And that includes you. I hope you know that, that you are part of that city. Whether you're in Salem or Marblehead or some other city, you are part of that flourishing. In fact, it actually starts with you, with your soul. But what is what is flourishing even? It's a beautiful word, but we don't use it a ton, maybe. What actually is flourishing? A good synonym is just phrase, the good life, the good life. One person, this, this guy named Miroslav Volf, says that the good life consists of three things, a life being led well, a life going well, and life feeling good. Life being led well, life going well, life feeling good. That's flourishing, as he would say. That's a big ask. That's a, pretty, that's a pretty wonderful thing to think about, but is that even realistic? Verses 11 to 15, as we finish up here, point us towards true flourishing. Verses 11 and 12, you see a comparison of enemies versus the, the righteous, kind of the two different types of life that are lived. You see the enemies have a downfall, They've fallen. But verse 12, it says, The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. I'm going to make the assumption that most of you know what a palm tree is because you've probably been to Florida or or a restaurant that has a fake one or something. And so a palm tree is this, this beautiful tropical tree that you'll recognize. But I'm also going to make the assumption that most of you have probably never been to Lebanon like myself. I've never been to Lebanon. But if you look at a, a tree in Lebanon, they are these giant, gorgeous pine trees. It's actually on their, their nation's flag. That's what they're known for. They are a nation that is known for this type of tree that is majestic and beautiful, a cedar tree in Lebanon. That's what ultimate flourishing looks like, is a, a vibrant, fruit-bearing palm tree in Florida and a giant, majestic cedar in Lebanon that can withstand anything. Flourishing means that you're growing. That's the the metaphor here. It means that you're growing in righteousness. It means that you're growing day by day over a long period of time in the right things. The righteous flourish like this. Verse 13, it says, they are planted in the house of the Lord and they flourish in the courts of our God. There's that word again. Flourish. True flourishing means that you're only it only comes by being planted deeply in the right place. Again, I get really nervous when I start doing gardening metaphors because I'm the wrong person to go to for any kind of gardening advice. And it's amazing how often the Bible uses gardening metaphors. So I've got to work on that in my preaching life. But I think the metaphor is pretty plain here that when you plant something in the right place, it grows well. If you plant something in the wrong place, it won't go well. Am I I generally on the right track here? Okay, Okay, I'm on the right track. So where is a person to be planted in order to grow? In the house of the Lord, verse 13. In the courts of our God. If a person is planted there, they will grow and flourish. I don't think I really need to say anything, though. That's a beautiful thought. There's an illustration here. I'm I'm just going to go deeper into these waters here while I'm at it. Sunflowers. I read this illustration recently of sunflowers that when they're planted, they are very dependent, like most plants, but maybe even more so than most plants, very dependent on the sun. Meaning that when the sun is out, they actually turn to the sun. And that's where they look to for their growth. So you may ask, well, what happens on a cloudy day or on a rainy day when the sun's not happening? Do you know where they turn? To each other. Turn to each other. And that's what enables them to have life-giving growth. And I think that's a good example for the church. We look to Jesus, we look to God, we are planted in his courts, in his house, And yet, when we we struggle to see him, when the sorrows of life overcome us, when the cloudy days are here, we look to each other. Remind me who God is. Remind me what he's done. Can you show me Jesus again today? Can you show me the cross? Remind me of the deep truths of life. Remind me of his greatness. I need that today. That's what the church is. Verses 14 and 15, the last part of this passage. Flourishing people, this is so encouraging. Flourishing people don't fade when they get older. They don't fade with age. Rather, verse 14, they still bear fruit in old age. So, no matter what age you are in this room, we have young babies. We have older folks, we have everything in the middle. You can flourish in the house of the Lord because of the saving love of Jesus. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green, meaning that sap is super important to a tree. It helps them sustain life and to produce sugars that help the thing grow and stay, stay with its nutrients. And they stay green, meaning that obviously they are healthy and flourishing. And that happens throughout your life until you die. And for the Christian, for the righteous, you live with God in eternity forever. All this comes up to basically say, as Jesus summarized in John 10:10, 10, 10, I came that you may have life and have it to the full. That's the life that Jesus wants you to have. A flourishing life is a life of fullness abundance that is brimming with with everything that he gives and so though our hearts are torn by sorrows though our bodies ache as we get older our soul can flourish because we stay in the courts of the lord forever and worship on the sabbath is what gives us that kind of flourishing life i'll close with this illustration i almost decided to show you a video of it um, but i'll just explain it to you uh, there's a comedian Uh, named Michael Jr., who when I was doing youth ministry, I heard about a lot because kids like comedians, but this guy named Michael Jr. uh, was telling a story, and it's actually not not one of his jokes. He just was sharing this in another setting, but he was telling the story of when his daughter was born, and she was brand new, like five minutes old, and he explains how they they take the baby, and if if you've had a baby, you remember this. They, They take it and put it under this little heating thing he was calling it like a, a, a French fry heater. That's kind of what it looks like. But he puts the baby under there to keep it warm while they you know, do the umbilical cord and all that and get it, check all the vitals. But he says, when that was happening, the baby was crying, which is healthy for a child, all right, when they're born. But the child was crying, his daughter was crying. And, and he, he has a video of this, of his daughter crying. He walks over to her and says, It's okay, it's okay, I'm right here, I'm right here with you, it's all gonna be okay. And she stops crying at the first sound of his voice. Immediately, stops crying. And then he steps away and starts to do something else, and she starts crying again, because that's what babies do. And this time he goes over, and he says, it's okay, it's okay, I'm right here, I love you. And the video, it's a powerful moment. She stops crying, and then she opens her eyes, And looks at him. And he says, that's something. He summarizes it. These are his words. Here's the thing. We'll always have times where we're not as comfortable, probably even to the point of tears, where life is just heavy. The key thing to do in those moments is to be still and listen for the Father's voice. Because he is trying to talk to you. And I can tell you what he wants you to know is that he loves you. All you have to do is open your eyes. And so by coming to this place for Sabbath worship, we pray each week that it's a refreshment for you, both in a reflection of what your week has been like, whatever you've gone through, and whatever is gonna come your way. We come to this place to listen for the Father's voice, to be reminded that he loves you, and to ask him to open our eyes so we may see him again. And follow him in faith. Because look what he's done for us. He's died on the cross. He's rose again. And life is open. So let's worship him. Let me close us in prayer. And Javier will lead us in our final song. Heavenly Father, thank you for opening our eyes week after week to the glory of your name. Go with us this week. May we be refreshed and ready for whatever comes our way because of coming to this place. Thank you for the church. Thank you for, for speaking it into existence. Thank you for the life that Jesus gives us. We pray it all in his name. Amen.